Thank you so much, gentlemen. I am excited to be here. Well, good. We are too. You came with 22-year-old whiskey. (laughs) (laughs) This is Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon, bringing to you the best in news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. And I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman. By now, you've probably heard of the the legendary Stitzel Weller Distillery. And getting a taste of this whiskey that was created by this famous distillery is nearly impossible for the average person now. But there is one opportunity that remains where you can get just a hint at the greatness that once was. And Doug Craigle, he joins the show to give us the history and the in-depth breakdown of Blade & Bow. As a brand educator, he knows all about the products in the Diageo portfolio. And we try to dig into more about the identity of all these whiskeys. And to make everybody just a little bit more jealous of us, we even get to drink the very limited 22-year-old Blade & Bow release. With that, enjoy this week's episode. And now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This week's idea comes from Patreon member Jordan Ferguson, who writes me on fredminnick.com. Is there a science behind how much a whiskey gets marked up through the distribution and retail process? Well, Jordan, I'm no big city economic professor, but I have talked to many distillers about this very, very issue. And the best person who ever kind of simplified it for me was the great Steve Thompson. Steve Thompson was the former president for Brown Foreman. And he's the founder of Kentucky Artisans Distillery in, you know, Crestwood, Kentucky. They have a brand called Whiskey Row and partnered with Jefferson's. He was an amazing man, a wealth of knowledge, and did not care about who he pissed off. He, I, I love talking to him. But he uh, he basically said that the distiller on, and this is, this is an average, this is going to vary from brand to brand, but on average, the distilling community will sell to the distributor at half of their SRP. So if a company says that their SRP is $100, they are actually selling it to the distributor for 50. So they're selling it to Southern and Glaciers, RNDC, uh, River City, or whoever for 50 bucks. The distributor will then get it and then mark it up, you know, 25%. So in this case, it would be they'll probably mark it up to 75. And so they will sell, the distributor will sell that SRP bottle of $100 to the retailer for $75. The retailer gets that bottle, it's 75 bucks. They can mark it up to the SRP. They can mark it up over. They can mark it up everywhere they want to, except under. It is actually against the law to mark it below a wholesale cost in most U.S. markets. Now, it varies by state to state, but you know, alcohol being as regulated as it is, for the most part, a company cannot uh, do that. However, there are some retailers who will mark below wholesale costs, and then they end up getting you know in trouble with the local ABCs. But by the time they end up paying all their lawyer fees, they've got the consumers. And so it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a weird marketing strategy slash, you know, legal inconvenience uh, for some retailers. But that's kind of it. I mean, I don't know if there's really a science to it. It's just, it's just kind of the way that the, the industry works and, you know, hindered by age old laws that you can't trust the distilling community because they will, you know, violate price fixing laws and so forth. I mean, you can read about that in my book, Bourbon, the Rise, Fall, and Rebirth of American Whiskey, where distillers try to basically try to run out like independent stores or independent bottlers and distillers by price fixing. And and so there's all these laws on the books to protect the smaller guys and the consumers from the brands getting together and price fixing. But that's a great question, Jordan. And I think that there's not really much we can do to educate people on it because everyone has a has a mentality that the store should sell for cheaper all the time because of Walmart, Amazon, but you just can't do that with alcohol. There's there's a lot of regulations attached to it. But that's going to do it for this week's uh, Above the Char. If you want to be like Jordan Ferguson, hit me up on uh, fredminnick.com and uh, let me know your thoughts. Until next week, cheers.
From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com. And you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. And they're off for another Gift 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 0002703. Do you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around, and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? And perhaps you're also looking for a good Father's Day gift idea. Well, you can now solve both with a kit from Nose Your Bourbon. And unlike other nosing kits on the market, Nose Your Bourbon kits feature real ingredients for the most authentic aromas. You can smell real Tahitian vanilla bean instead of some synthetic aroma that's just made from chemicals. So head on over to NoseYourBourbon.com and enter code BP10 for 10% off your order. Welcome back. Another episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. Kenny and Ryan here today talking about a brand that I think everybody knows. Literally everybody in bourbon knows about the brand, but we've never done a deep dive on it and really to understand more about it it's history, you know, it's kind of the lineage of, of the Stitzel Weller kind of family as well when Diageo kind of took it over. So it's going to be kind of interesting to pull a little of these uh, behind the curtain of it. Yeah, I got a lot of questions lined up. No. Uh, <laughs> like, how hard can we snub them today? No, I, I remember when this first came out, it was kind of in line with, uh, you know, we're talking about Blade and Bow today, but it's kind of in line with all the orphan barrels. You know, Diageo released those, and then this kind of soon followed after Beautiful packaging, you know, it came out with 22 years age, maybe, and then I, I think there was like a 15 year at one time, or maybe not. I don't know. I'm whiffing, but uh, we'll get it, into that. Yeah, for sure. I, I I had the 22 year old, but it's been a long time. It's when it first came out, but man, I always was a big fan of those orphan barrels. Like sometimes people gave it a hard time because they're like, oh, it's packaged, you know, in Tennessee and this and that, and there was kind of like a mystery around it. But I, I was a huge fan of those. It did it did catch some slack early on from oddly enough, like folks like us that are very heavy into bourbon and enthusiasts aside to kind of figure out like wait how are they really orphan if they just found them and like where are the where are the originations like why they why is it proof solo but there's something to say about the packaging and how well it's done from a brand perspective because it's not like you see them sitting on shelves like they're selling out right so that's there is something to say about how well it does do in the market yeah and everybody collected the whole you know oh the whole set the whole set remember when they it's, came out that huge like six bottle set that yeah. came in like the wooden case yeah, yeah see I know, and I had three of them, and I was like, well, do I want all of them again? I don't know. It's like, <laughs> it was a good chunk of change, but now looking back, I should have done it. I just remember Lost Profit being one of my favorites. I liked Barter House, and I loved the one, gosh, Blowhard with the whale. It was like a 26 year And I was like, and usually 26, 20, that old tastes like straight wood. It was like perfectly balanced. It was really good. Well, let's go ahead and introduce our guests. And yeah, we're rambling. Our, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll get back to the blade, but we're not going to hop on the orphan barrel stuff today. But today on the show, we have Doug Craigle. He is an educator of blade and bow, as well as part of the Diageo Accelerator portfolio. So, Doug, welcome to the show. 
Thank you so much, gentlemen. I am excited to be here. Well, good. We I are talking too. Whiskey. You came with 22-year-old whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's the way I make friends as much <laughs> as I can, right? Like if I come with whiskey, I feel like people are going to listen to me talk for at least 20 minutes. We can get you we'll 20 We'll give you 45. <laughs> Deal. I brought two whiskeys, so <laughs> yeah, that makes that, sense. There, exactly. There you go. We'll, we'll split it between the half there. Before we talk about the brand, kind of talk about you a little bit. So sure. how did you come into this role? How did you get into whiskey and how did you figure, you know, this is a, this is a fun thing because we actually talked about before we started here, you go by educator versus a lot of people in the, the space go by brand ambassador. So kind of talk about how you got into this particular role. Sure, sure. Yeah. So it's, it's one of those things I feel like there's no clear trajectory when it comes to brand ambassadors and like education within, I think, any spirit category in general. But for me, it was particularly like I was in the hospitality industry, right? Managing, working in bars, restaurants, all of that kind of stuff until a point when I eventually had to decide to like get, you know, graduated college. It's like, all right, now you got to get the like adult job and uh, went into sales first. Realized really early on that I was a pretty terrible salesman. <laughs> you, know, you know, one of those things like sales rep yeah. work in. You're and just like giving it away. But just, ah, yeah. Well, you know, it's not really working here. It was one of those things where it's like, you know, it's hard to force someone to something they don't need. Like for me, it was this idea that I was only good. I, I realized really quickly I was only good at selling certain things and to certain people. And it was about like fitting it into the right space. And that's when I had the opportunity they were hiring the first, it was actually George Dickel was the brand at the time, the first national ambassador for George Dickel Tennessee whiskey. And uh, a mentor of mine had actually mentioned, he's like, listen, you really should go for this. I mean, this is where your world, like this is where you fit in. And so that started my journey. That was 10 years ago this uh, coming July. What space was your mentor in? Was he in the spirits industry? Yeah, well? yeah. A gentleman by the name of Ewan Morgan. Um, oh, we've had you yeah. on the show. I'm sure yeah. That have. was, golly, that had to have been in the... Eons ago. Oh, uh, not Eons. It was previously the episode probably 40, if I had to guess, yeah. when we had Ewan on. It was yeah. a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. So he, I mean, this was in the days of like they had the Master Whiskey program focused on Scotch whiskey. This was like a subset. The first time that so like an iconic whiskey ambassador program was venturing into the American whiskey space, right? 10 years ago. So that, which I think lines up with the timeline of what we've seen for trends anyway. So he was the one who kind of recommended that I go on this journey. And then from there, it was all about, I've always worked with Diageo brands and it was like the resources that they've allowed me to have, you know, everything from, of course, doing like the executive bourbon steward here in Louisville to actually taking like the GCD over from Scotland. So taking that general certificate of distillers, and like multi-advocate courses. So I've been able to like slowly add more and more education into like my my skill set, which has been fantastic. What was Dickel like when you started? Like what were they adding? Like what were their, you know, cause we know where they are now, but back then not a lot of people probably knew about them. Like what were their goals at the time? Like you with know, Dickel? It was, this was pre even like the Dickel Rye launch, right? So when I came into it, what was really fascinating was is it was actually, they have still had the Cascade Hollow recipe, which was like a three-year-old red label that was on the shelf. And it was Dickel 8, Dickel 12, and that was about it. And so they were just looking at a way to really expand into the on-premise more than anything else. Like that was the goal. That was, I think, everybody's goal at that point was like, all right, we need to fa focus so much more on bars than we do on retail. And that seems to be what Diageo is really good at. Yeah. We just read a study. Bullet was like the photo of the best spirit, you know, bartenders use or whatever. Yeah. It's, it's a focus, right? Like it's definitely from Diageo. It's one of those focuses of being like food occasion and, and the on-premise has been something that's, you know, been a really big focus, but that was like the turning point right around that time period. And so it was, it was a still a small brand, but it was a small family of marks at that point. And now they've kind of expanded a lot more. So it's, it's been pretty interesting to see the growth of that whiskey. And how long were you doing the, the Dickel portfolio before you started moving on to other things? So that was until 2015, essentially, with the launch of Blade and & Bow. And as well as actually the year previous, they had just relaunched IW Harper into the market as well. So those two whiskeys really like expanded my reach. I think that's where I was confused. The 15 the years, 15 the year. IW Harper, because they came out at the same time. Some kind of time I always forget IW Harper is a part of the portfolio too sometimes though. Yeah, yeah. It's, so it was that expansion of American whiskeys. 
And then from there, I like slowly would just continue to collect whiskeys until it's pared down to, for like the current version of my job. But it was Harper, then it was Blade and Bow. I've been a part of that brand since it was launched, which is, it's really fascinating to be a part of something from inception and watch it grow when it comes to like the American whiskey space. And then uh, even, you know, got to work on Bullet for a while, as well as even up to like Crown Royal expanded to North American whiskey for a couple of years um, before kind of a reshuffle of where those brands sat within Diageo. And then they focused it back in to just Dickel and Blade and Bow, two brands that like her. The accelerator idea is this idea of just like trying to promote growth within a certain set of markets as opposed to like a, like a, a just a blanket kind of um, marketing plan across the country. So it's really about focusing in and then allowing like natural growth. Gotcha. That was about the, that was going to be actually my next question was talking about how does the accelerator program really work and, and how do you, well, how do you determine those markets? Is it based on, is it just general populace? Is it because these are the bars that we want to hit for on-premise? Like what's, what's that, what's that criteria? I think it's a, it's a brand to brand kind of set Blade and Bow is all about very like that brand has grown so slowly and it went from basically what we called as like an incubator model where it was like year one, it only launched in four markets. It's the four corners of the whiskey world as I like to consider it, right? It was, it was Louisville, Chicago, New York, and San Francisco, right? It was like hit all the big ones, that was it. And then round two of their launches was basically your next level whiskey towns, you know? And that was everything from let's say Seattle, Denver, places like that for sure, Portland. And then from there, they started to tap into their consumer, which was like this Southern culture and lifestyle. So then it kind of hooked the Southeast everywhere, really from DC down the coast, across over to New Orleans. It was like that backwards J hook, I guess, of the, of the Southeast is what they ended up kind of focusing in on, which is still today, I think the core for how they're like really marketing the brands. There's continual growth and expansion within the next year or so, but it's about being available to everyone in select places instead of being unavailable to everyone everywhere, you know, is kind of the focus. With that many cities, are you wrapping Delta Diamond by that point of, <laughs> of going through everybody? It's Every three years is my, it's because I am a Delta guy and it's, I'm on a th every three year track before this past year, of course, Absolutely. you know, yeah. uh, I was on an every three year cycle for hitting diamond. Wow. That's <laughs> a lot of flights. Yeah. But 2020 flights. was supposed to be my diamond year and it got knocked off right at the end. Unfortunately, it was like the last couple, you know, with that March or whatever it was where the last couple trips got knocked off. And I was like, man, I was almost there. So I had to start the whole cycle over again. Oh, well, yeah, now you're just, what, platinum. That's mm -hmm. that's unfortunate. <laughs> you're still, at, at the rate with what we're seeing with uh, air travel, you're still getting bumped up no matter what. <laughs> that's true, that's true. <laughs> so you're getting that. All right, so let's let's talk about a little bit more about the brand uh, and Blade and & Bow a little, because this is kind of like your baby that you've been around. How long you've been doing with the brand now? For five years, is that how long? Yeah, so six years, really. I mean, six to, well, now we're at 2015 to just now yeah. to 2022. So we're looking at six and change really what was the, the genesis of blaine bow like why was it created what you kind of described a little bit a second ago who you're trying to target or whatnot but talk about that the, the genesis of the brand yeah so um it's really fascinating because you know so many times uh whiskeys are focused around uh lineage from like a a name's perspective and it's usually a person's name right uh, for a lot of it, at least historically that's what we see and this whiskey was created around a place instead of a person you know and so as you kind of imagine what that's going to manifest to be blade and bow is a whiskey that is pulling from stories and references from the Stitzelweller distillery. And so since Diageo we we owned the facility and it's been a part of our library, if you want to call it, or the campus has for quite a while now, but they had this moment where they realized they had in their possession some of that last remaining bourbon that was distilled in the on, on property right in that 1991, 1992 time period. Now that's an orphan barrel to find right, right there. Well, see, and that's the thing, right? So orphan barrel already was operating really nicely and it was, it was a successful kind of portfolio as it was, but I think there was a choice to be made and it was, do we take this whiskey and put it into an orphan barrel and have a one-off, you know, Stitzelweller liquid and just use that as it is, pull those barrels and that's it. Or what they landed on was finding an opportunity to start to build 
and create something built on the stories of the past that can start to move into what the future of the facility can be. And um, that's what they landed on. They had to find a unique way to take some of that old bourbon and yet still create something that was going to be viable from a multiple market perspective, you know, instead of just being able to say, all right, here's a one-off release, it's going to go to collectors and then we're pretty much done with it. And that's where they landed on what I consider to be like traditional innovation within bourbon, you know, and that was using the Solera method to stretch out and elongate that old whiskey in order to create something that could constantly kind of move forward and have that kind of multi-tiered mingling process. Before we get into that sort of mingling sure. process there, when you think about the brand, we, we couldn't you couldn't call it anything that said Stitzel Weller on it because a lot of that's sort of trademarked and passed between a lot of different places and it was un- unable. But how did the name Blade and Bow come about? Right. That's a great question, right? So it still comes back to the stories. And yes, you know, I mean, it's like, I feel like every day that I talk about this whiskey, I have this like distinct privilege of being able to talk about and be a steward for historical stories that aren't ours. We don't own them in any right, but we have to find a way to give them the respect they deserve. Because obviously, you know, you talk about Stitzweller and it's like a cornerstone of like this industry and what it's grown up to be. I think that's probably one of the good things that, are, that we should probably reiterate to a lot of our listeners that might be new to this world is that Stitzweller is by far is one of the powerhouses of American whiskey back in the day. And to this day, if you can get your hands on old bottles as well, or most people say it's some of the best whiskey that you've ever tasted. Unfortunately, it was just, you know, like everything else, just suffered from a wrong, blood wrong era. Wrong place, right time. Yeah. Wrong time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> they could just survive 10 more years. It would have been, they might have been okay. Might yep. have been okay. And that's, and, that's, and that's one of the things that people need to understand is that's what made... Van Winkle famous was Stitzelweller stock. It's not because of the name. It's not because whatever. It's because of that particular whiskey that made them famous. Anyway, back to your yeah. story. So it would a hundred percent agree, right? Like, and and we can go into all that history too. And it's it's so it's so fascinating. And like, I feel lucky that I get to go to that facility as many times as I do and walk around and just feel it and soak it in. And it's it's soaking all of that in that really the ghost of Weller past kind exactly. of just hanging out there. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So it's soaking all that in that really gives you the opportunity to like see how it's manifest in the bottle. So the back to the name. So blade and bow is the anatomy of a skeleton key. So like, just like the key that's on this bottle here, this is the, uh, the blade is going to be the, uh, shaft of the key. And then the bow is going to be the ornate handle. So the name itself, even though it feels like a, an, a hunting reference almost, <laughs> right. You know, hunting slash, uh, farming, something like that. Right. You know, yeah. It is, the just like our uh, logo itself, which is those five keys, it's it's referential to that story, the five keys, right? And it's, I think when you look at a lot of stuff coming out of Stitzel or anything that is connected to like the last or the last remaining, you have like a lot of key imagery. And it's because of that idea that when they opened Derby Day 1935, there were five keys that hung on the front door. And they were that symbol of the five steps to making great whiskey. So it was that grains, yeast, fermentation, distillation and maturation but what i always find to be the the cooler part of the legend of that is that they were the actual keys to the building and so it was a symbol it's like it's like eh, it's not hitting at the rock up front you don't have to lift that or underneath the doormat it's literally just hanging on the door if you want to go if you want it's like it's right here (laughs) i just love that from a like from a symbolic perspective it's like i think it represents hospitality in the bourbon industry like that kind of gesture it's like before bourbon tourism before all of that before there was a bourbon trail for people to be trying to come and visit if you had business there and you saw the keys on the front door then you already knew that you could get through the barrier that it was open welcome for you so it was this idea of like you had that feeling approaching the building and uh so that's just that's one of the one of the stories that i think inspired such a beautiful package as well yeah isn't there on like i know the larceny brand and old fitz brand stem from the stitzel and larceny as the key holder mm-hmm. or something too so it's like it's all making sense now yeah it's such a and people may not draw that kind of conclusion but it, like it's such a it's such an important piece of imagery and such a really fascinating story that's within like the roots of that distillery and I think it just, you know, has inspired uh, so many brands and so many things. So the other obvious question that I'm going to get to here is those Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey. Mm-hmm. So where 
I'm not going to ask like, where did you get it from? But how does the partnership but where'd work? Where'd you get it from? Where'd you get, where'd you get it from? But I mean, it's one of those things that, you know, I know Diageo is a huge company. And so is it one of those things that like these partnerships were made and formed a long time ago? Was it saying, hey, we're starting to do this thing. We got to go buy some stuff in the open market. Do you know like the sort of origin behind where the whiskey is a part of this? Yeah. So, I mean, the core is still coming from that, that pre-1992 shutdown bourbon, right? And so that, from my understanding, of course, you know, we only have so many answers because contracts and all the things, yeah. but, um, we're very well aware, right? <laughs> but it's, I think it's the, the core is that pre 1992. And, and I always make the assumption is that those are the kind of things that come with the sales of facilities like that, you know, within the stocks of the warehouses, as opposed to open market purchase stuff. But Diageo and our, you know, Blade and Bow, we have the, I think we have the connections and the contracts within like the bourbon industry to be able to then figure out who we can source from in order to craft the second part of creating this whiskey, which is blending those like that fractional blending system. So like we have criteria, but then I think from there, it's really a matter of, of what we, what we're already getting and, and what kind of supplies out there. So you call it fractional blending. The other mm -hmm. word people call is Solera. Is, it, is yeah. that kind of what you're, you're going yeah. towards? Yeah. So Solera, like the great thing is, so Solera is historically, right, from the sherry industry. It's hundreds of years old. Uh, bodegas in the sherry triangle have been using the Solera system for, for the fortified wines, you know, and we are using a fraction of the, the kind of process of that and applying it to bourbon we don't we're not trying to promote the growth of wild yeast on the bourbon like they do like that kind of stuff but we are trying to use that fractional blending portion of it so that's why i usually re reference it that way and it also Can you explain slayer just for someone who might not understand that 100 so for you yeah exactly <laughs> no, I'm, just kidding. I'm trying to hide my discrepancy my, my or my inefficiencies here well so it imagine a period uh, like a pyramid of barrels sitting on like a warehouse floor right where you're gonna have for us it's five levels traditionally in solera it was like a three level process um, but we're using five and so if you imagine that pyramid of barrels level five is gonna have that oldest bourbon in it right so that's gonna be that pre-1992 shutdown bourbon and then if you jump all the way to the top the top one is is where we enter in what would be considered in the in the sherry like new wines but for us it's gonna be no younger than six-year-old kentucky straights going into the level one and then every time we pull from the bottom level, if say we take 100 gallons out of level five, level four, we'll take 100 gall gallons out of level four, fill five. And then from three to four, two to three, one to two, and then we're taking 100 gallons of, you know, no younger than six-year-old Kentucky straight bourbon, and that's going into level one. And that process will repeat over again. So not only is it age by age, starting six and then level two, seven, level three is eight. Cause as you can imagine, we're not fully draining the barrels that would defeat the purpose of preserving all this anyway. So it's compounding on itself. Every single time you blend downward, I usually describe it too, as like either a champagne or a chocolate fountain, depending on what you prefer. But you know, that idea when you're pouring in the top, that top glass will fill the next one, will fill the next one, will fill the next one. So it ends up being in 2015, we had to essentially manufacture something that's been happening for hundreds of years with the sherry industry, which is having multiple ranges of ages within each level. So when we started, it was no younger than, at the time it was no younger than, there was seven year old is what we started off for level one, seven, eight for level two, seven, eight, nine, seven, eight, nine, 10, seven, eight, nine, 10, 21 which is what we clocked that pre-1992 at when we started the system. And then every year it compounds over and over again, plus they're sitting in cooperage as well. So, I mean, you still have aging there, even though it is non-age statement because this process is definitely, you know, throwing out the window, the idea of what our age requirements are and six-year-old would just not, I don't think, do justice to the flavor profile of what we're tasting in the whiskey. Yeah, it tastes a lot older. It's, yeah, it's it like does. really balanced. It's like a quintessential uh, Kentucky bourbon, like all those good notes. Yeah. Well, and the thing I love about this system, and I consider it to be, like I said earlier, I consider it to be like a traditional innovation. You know, whiskey innovation can make people think of all sorts of things these days, right? But the same way that I consider like the concept of barrel finishing to be, it's a, such a historic process, but it is innovation. You know, it was innovative when, when Angel's Envy did it. You know what I mean? It was, it's, it's innovation in a way that is 
drawing on history to create something new in this in the bourbon space. And so this process for us, I think, gives us the opportunity where like this whiskey to me smells like an older whiskey or smells like a younger whiskey and drinks like an older whiskey. So like my favorite part about a five-year-old bourbon is the nose. But my favorite part about drinking a 20-year-old bourbon is how complex the palate is, you know, and like this kind of gets you both because of all of that kind of blending. So if you talk about fractions, I'm sure not the first time somebody's asked this. So what's the fractional percentage of Stutzweller that's in that bottle right there? <laughs> that's where the PR person came <laughs> in. <laughs> I'm going I'm to pause for a second. There you go. Yeah, she pause get, on that She one. takes off mute. <laughs> no, I mean, but I mean, that's, it's funny to, to kind of say that because I'm sure that's a question that you, you typically get. And it's, it's impossible to really know. And it's kind of interesting the fact that most people, when we talk to them about their particular bourbon, they're like, oh, how many barrels go into your, your small batch product? And they're like, well, you know, it's 10, it's 1,000. It doesn't really matter what, what that's going to be. But yours is not going to be like that. It's going to be something that they're just continually dumping into either, is it dumping into tanks and then draining or agitating? Like, what's the... What's so it's like, I kind of try to describe it as I can imagine. It's like a super complicated version of leapfrog for bourbon. You know, it's the idea like, you know, you get those neutral vats that we're going to dump into, right? And so we'll dump level five into a vat and then level four. And then as we pull off and then pull off from four to put into five in that full dump, and then they're going to refill five. Then we'll dump three, you know, put it into a vat. And so it's like this constant, like with space and everything else, it's, it's such a complicated process. You can't dump everything at once. You've just got to keep it in check and you've got to like consistently keep jumping over each other to, to put it all together, which is one of the reasons it's, you know, it's a really complex process. And I think that is probably definitely informed why it's not a full launch, right? Why, why it's so much harder to say that it's available everywhere and why we wanted to focus in on specific markets because it's a labor-intensive process to just, just to pull, you know, what would be traditionally, all right, pull these lots, dump them, quality check, bottle, hit, hit the road. And, you know, it's a little bit, there's so much more and a lot more labor that goes into it. So is, do you have a team that works on this or is there one like master blender that's like, in, like that's your baby or? Well, so we have, we definitely have teams. You know, the great thing is I think the North American team for Diageo in general, like uh, when it comes to like the blending teams, they are, you know, constantly collaborating with each other, you know, and, and working together. So, it's, you know, it's all the staff out at Stitzelweller, which is where all the process is happening from like the actual labor and pulling the barrels and dumping. And then like the first quality check's going to happen there. But then we also have sensory labs in Shelbyville with the new labs that were opened out there with the Bullet Distilling Company, as well as a sensory lab down in Cascade Hollow, plus where like our bottling facilities are in, in Plainfield and things like that. So they're all over the place. It's like constant check, double check, triple check kind of situation. So it is a big team effort. Big team effort. Big team effort. Big team effort. So I'll ask a, a, a tough, it's a tough question. So what would you say to people out there that are sort of like naysayers of it? And they're like, and eh, they say there's a bunch of 20 year old Stitzel and I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Like how, do, <laughs> like, how do you, like, how do you field questions like that? And how do you sort of like put that more to ease to say like, no, like other than me sitting, you showing you pictures of the barrels being dumped in there. Like, how do you, how do you answer something like that? If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon. The farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point-of-sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns, from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone. 
Transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. So what would you say to people out there that are sort of like naysayers of it? And they're like, yeah, they say there's a bunch of 20 year old Stitzel and I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Like how do like, how do you, like, how do you field questions like that? And how do you sort of like put that more to ease to say like, no, like other than me sitting, you showing you pictures of the barrels being dumped in there. Like, how do you, how do you answer something like that? Yeah. So, I mean, honestly, at the end of the day, I totally understand that position, you know, and I know for a fact too, when you think about it, this is a romantic, it's going to become a romantic notion at some point. If we're stretching it out and we continue to grow and we continue to sell, it's going to become this idea that it's going to get less and less and less. Yeah. Basically you should have bought the first release of Blade and Bow. Right. <laughs> but the great thing is think about it. So I like um, this release. This one's really good. This one, that's what, I mean, it's one of I didn't mean to interrupt you, but it's one of those things, you're right, it's uh, on the nose, it's a little bit younger, but on the taste, you get the oak and a little yeah. more depth. It's got such a rich mouthfeel. Yeah. yeah. It's good. It's it's complexity. And I mean, when we think about in 2015, the ages that we were using for this process, well, we still have the next one under the 21-year-old that was that pre-1992, that was 10 years old, right? And now we're six years later. So now we're, I mean, that's evolved to 16-year-old bourbon as it is. So... It's one of these things that it is an idea that's building on the past to create something for the future. And like we, it's, we can't always hold on to it forever, but it is, it's such a part of our identity, you know? So what I would say is it's, it comes down to the way it drinks, you know, yeah. and like. Tastes good. What does it matter? Right. <laughs> and, and like just building off of the process. I mean, maybe it was that, that old pre-1992 shutdown bourbon that got you to buy the first bottle, but hopefully it's, it's that you know, that last glass out of the bottle that's getting you to buy the next one, you know, kind of situation. Is it funny? Sometimes you're like, well, the reason that there's that 22 year old bourbon is because it didn't sell back then. <laughs> you know, we're improving it through our process, you know? Yeah. You know what? Well, I definitely think that, um, you could use that one if they <laughs> use had, that in your next education session. If yeah. they had given me an opportunity to taste it, before it went in there, I'm sure it was also absolutely delicious. Oh, wow. I mean, how could it not be? It was, I did get a chance to try. We did have a, um, I believe it was a 24 year old Stitzel that was a auction item that was, I think in 2016 that we released, that was a single barrel. It went through Christie's. I think it was like one of the highest at the time, Wait, right? Like full barrel? Full barrel. Oh geez. We should have known about it. It was, I think it yielded 30, price, right? 34 or 38 bottles total. Oh wow. Oh, right. Um, from from the barrel because it was at 24 years old, but it was fascinating. And that was, I tried that. And I mean, that was delicious, you know, even at that age range, which, you know, like you said in the beginning, sometimes you assume over 20, you know, it's a, it's a crapshoot. Right. <laughs> Dicey. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, I, that is kind of cool to kind of know more about the brand uh, from that perspective. And like I said, I always have to take this sort of devil's advocate approach to it because people are going to want to know. Mm -hmm. I, and I guess that kind of leads to the next question. Because the communities is, they're so nice. You know? <laughs> they are. There's nobody, there's, nobody's like happy you go lucky all the time with it. So when we talk about like this idea of stretching out and stretching it out, we know that that particular stock isn't going to be there forever. Does that mean that Blade and Bow in essence is something that a brand may not be able to last forever because all those older barrels are just not going to be there. Is it the idea that solar aging, there's going to be uh, half of a fractional percentage that's going to be in every single bottle Yeah, until I mean, whenever. So, and that'll happen at some point, right? Like that's going to have to be something that happens. But at that point too, we're hopefully looking at these opportunities to one in 2015, Along with launching Blade and Bell, we also launched the Still House B project, which is, you know, um, something where we've been laying down barrels, like the first new liquid to be produced on site was at that same launch time, you know, and so we have been distilling bourbon on site at Stitzelweller that we're putting down in warehouses. So 
most of that is this idea of research and development. You know, it's a small, it's a, it's definitely a small craft still. It's about a barrel a week is I think what our production on the so four day, four day small. run, right? Yeah. It's a tiny guy versus, you know, compared to the column still that used to be at Stitzelweller, which was 65 feet tall. And I think it made like a, a barrel every four minutes and 16 seconds or something like that. But we're still trying to create the environment to hopefully propel us into the future and like laying down these barrels is never a bad idea and like hopefully you know i would love personally to see it come full circle in that way that we could be incorporating some of the there is still some of the last remaining bourbon distilled there and we could incorporate some of the some of the newest bourbon that was distilled there you know but i'm a romantic when it comes hey, to whiskey okay let's let's get let's keep the romantic dream alive here because that, that does bring up another question when i when i think about it too is you know diageo owning uh, the old Stitzelweller facility. What's the idea of just having the small still and not trying to recreate the magic that was once there? I think you said it in, in part of it, you know, I mean, I think it would be amazing to be able to do, but the facilities as they are, you know, I mean, you were there, it's, you've seen it. It's also, it's, it's, it's a big, it's, it's, it's going to take big, some money to fix it back up. It's a up big endeavor. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, um, Right now, we're focused on the hospitality side of Stitzelweller more than anything else. And those, that's where the investments have been so far. So I think that the, the craft still was a, was a great start. I think that I would love, I mean, I would love to see it happen, but I think it would, it's, it's a big project well, to be out of that still isn't even in there anymore, right? There's a section of it, uh, one third of it sitting on the tour path. Uh, the rest of it, I think was either scrapped or they, you know, sent it back to Vendome to see what they could do with it. The doubler itself, uh, that thumper went to... It's a, uh, it's a it's, bullet now. Yeah, yeah, it's at BDC, which is pretty cool. And it looks just like, you know, just like it should. Um, I mean, like recreated, still has the brick on the bottom of it, like just like, kind of like the beer well does out there at Stitzel, like that kind of construction, which is pretty fascinating. Yeah, well, I guess if your your boss's 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 boss ever listens to this <laughs> and we, we look at the trajectory of where things are going, and I don't know, I think it would be a decent investment to say, hey, let's try and recreate the magic that every whiskey geek loves here. Granted, it's never going to be the same, but you at least have the components. You'd have to talk to the people at Bullet be like, oh, I'm sorry, we're going yeah, to need that Devler back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know that thing we gave you? We're gonna, we're gonna we need that back over here. That might be a hard, that might be a hard sell right there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, you know, just take down a wall here and there and, you know, move but no, I, I digress on that one. No, I think, think it's, it's kind of cool to see the history and kind of how that's all coming about. Uh, I do know that we had a chance to actually meet at the Garden and Gun Club, which is now happening at the distillery. Kind of talk about that too. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's amazing. I mean, I know you guys have probably seen this. Um, the thing I love the most about it, besides the design and our partnership, but I do think that uh, just having cocktail bars and food at Kentucky distilleries, like I, the first time I walked in there, I feel like it's a win-win. It's a win-win. It changes the feeling when you walk into a facility where you're like, all of a sudden you're like, wow, people are just, you can just hang out. You know, we're not like kind of like in, but then you feel like, oh, I can't like linger. They got more tours coming through. But now you can like meet a friend for a drink, you know, and just like hang and be like, wow, we're we're talking about whatever it is that we want to talk about over a, a great cocktail in like this historic facility. And that's the evolution that I think was the where the partnership comes from. Like the idea that Garden and Gun Magazine is is been a partner for with Blade and Bow since the beginning, since 2015. Um, and it's primarily been events across the country, as well as like just everything from they helped design and get us created uh, the uh, Blade and Bow horse trailer that was traveling the country to major events and whiskey festivals and things like that. And then we get to this point of... Um, finding what's, what's the next step. So them le leasing or licensing us the opportunity to use the same name that is the Garden and Gun Club in Atlanta, which is this amazing facility right outside of the, the new uh, Braves ballpark in that promenade area. And uh, it's just like a wonderful cocktail bar that just is all brass and perfect, you know, mid-century modern. And uh, a little piece of that is now on the second floor of the Stitzweller Distillery, which was historically offices and storage and everything else um, on the second floor of the administrative office, the original one. So it just fits perfectly. I've been there. They're good yeah. cocktails. Yeah. Still good. need to go. You need to take me, Kenny. We'll get there sometime. I'll take you on a date sometime <laughs> soon. So where at today is Blade and Bow? Like where, you know, you say you started with the four corners and this and that. Where where are we at with the brand and where are we going in the future? Well, I think we've, we're in the middle of like another expansion when it comes to markets that it's launching into. Uh, but it is, 
it's I think we're out up to last check for me was around 18 plus markets, right? And like that's that's changing this year. So I think that it's will continue, but it is kind of the core whiskey markets and then a primary focus within the Southeast. And I think that is, you know, there's a direct correlation between things like magazine readership as well when it comes to like Garden and Gun. It's the, cause the feeling that's, that's part of the evolution of that brands or those two brands together is they just feel like very similar kind of brands as well. And so it's kind of focusing on that kind of sporting leisure and lifestyle that goes along so well with whiskey, as well as I think tweed jackets and hunting dogs, you know, <laughs> suckers. You know, suckers. I need some elbow patches on my jacket or something. Like yeah. That too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did have one question too, because we had mentioned earlier that on these blade and bow bottles, there's a key on the side of it. Mm. If correct me if I'm wrong, aren't they numbered or something like that? Yeah, so it's a direct correlation to that story of the five keys. So there are five different keys on every bottle. This one here is a one key. You can tell, one, because there's a number one on it, but oh, two. Start our right? collection. Here we go. But it also, so you number a skeleton key by the, the voids that are on the key, right? So there's one negative space. There's actually two teeth. And that'll continue all the way up to five. So all five keys, collect all five, and you get inducted into the five keys club at Stitzweller. So we have about 1,800 members right now, and it's been running for a few years now. But um, That's way it? cooler than a Shotsky. So what's the club member get you? What, what's the so you get your name engraved on a gold julep cup, and it sits oh, on wow. the shelf at Stitzel. And like That's I already cool. said, I'm a, a romantic about this kind of stuff, right? So to me, the coolest part is just, wait, my name is up on the wall at Stitzelweller. You get to get a cocktail made in it. <laughs> if you want to, right? <laughs> so pull it off the wall. Like, pull it off the wall. I want an old fashioned in my cup, you know? There you it's go. Like, we do make a mean julep out there it's at the Garden and Gun Club as well. But um, yeah, so it's one of these things where uh, you can come through, you know, find your cup. If you wanted to, you could talk to us and you could probably take it with you. But I personally would leave it there so that you, oh, yeah. so your name's there. Or get a cocktail with it if you want. We'll wash it out first. That's awful nice of you. <laughs> so, Ryan, before we start, if you've never nosed the 22, you need to nose the 22 Man, before been, you get to I, it. I've been, I've, been, I've been digging the, the standard blade and bow. It's really good. I mean, yeah. what's hell, my glass is almost gone. What's the there proof on the standard? 90. 90. Yeah. Yeah, but I, okay. 90, I, I'm sorry. 91. 91. 91. A little bit, just a little bit above. Just, yeah, 0.5. But before we get into the, this 22 year right here, because I've had this before and it's it's phenomenal. The nose, I could just sit there and, and nose for days. Oh, but yeah. Kind of talk about bringing in a a more limited edition release into the portfolio. The thought behind that versus creating some sort of like one-off another orphan barrel or something like I, that before that i just smelled this and you know that argument i said well that that, that whiskey didn't sell it's no good it's it's damn good <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the limited release the whole idea of it is this opportunity to it's, it's an accent to the blade and bow launch and so it is stretched out longer than i think that we could have ever hoped it to for for a brand and that is to say and let everybody know right like it, it will be gone at some point there's no more of the liquid that's going into this besides what we have so like every year there's less and less but it was it started i think as a way of like being an accent to the to the launch of the blade and bow kentucky straight bourbon where like this is a symbol of the of one particular place, right? And that is the Stitzelweller Distillery. Bladenbow 22-year-old is, I think, just a symbol of like the hospitality portion of the story and the bourbon industry. Because a lot of people think that this is the same, that Stitzelweller bourbon going into this bottle um, that goes into the Solera. But we, we couldn't spare any of that. That all had to be in this guy. So what it is, is it's basically two historic liquids that have been <laughs> two most historic liquids. Okay. <laughs> most recently aging I at the that. Stitzelweller distillery. And so it's one of these opportunities where it's small, you know, small lots between the bourbons that were in the warehouses, both blended together, the young of which, the younger of the two, which was 22 years old. What was the older of the two then? They didn't give me the age statement on the older one. We'll it, say, it was we'll historic. Say, we'll say 22 and a half. Then. 22 right. and a half. Between, <laughs> yeah. So the two of them and just those two whiskeys mingled together to create this. And like, it's, it just, to me, it's like that idea of historic sites coming together to create something is i think what it represents and it is the nose is i think I could one, of my favorite, all day. one of my favorite I mean, parts it's 
Incredible. And well, and honestly, pouring it and then letting it sit for a while, like there's an evolution to that nose that kind of, I've used the description before that I kind of consider it's where right out of the bottle, it's like an apple pie after you put it together, but you haven't baked it. And like when you let it sit for about 10 minutes in contact with oxygen, all of a sudden it kind of shifts to that like out of the oven aroma because it just opens up. You've got more of it. The aromatics just kind of punch through and um, there's like, I think more like the doughy qualities kind of pop out. So yep. it's it's one of these things where it's like baking an apple pie just by pouring. The sugar it. has melted down, mm-hmm. opens up. <laughs> exactly. Man, it smells like, yeah, gooey caramel Dutch apple pie or something. Yeah. Yeah. And for anybody that doesn't know, so the 22 years also, it's a super limited release, right? I mean, how many bottles of that usually go out? Do you know? It changes every year, right? So I think that it's... Because maybe next year it'll be a 23 year. Who knows? No, uh, well, it's it changes the... Um, everything, from my understanding, everything is is ready to ship when it comes to this this whiskey at this point, you know, so that it, like, it, they wanted to arrest the process so that it is consistent from release to oh, release. It's, so it's tanked right now. It's tanked. Yeah. Tanks are bottled depending on where we are in the year. Yeah, releasing, you don't want to lose any more. You don't want to lose <laughs> any more of it, right? So, and we release it for September. So we try to release it for Bourbon Heritage Month every year is, is kind of the track on it. And it's, I don't know what our numbers look like this coming year, but I, I would venture to guess that it's under 2,000 bottles, you know, and that's me shot in the dark on that one. I think that it will continue to uh, get less and less over time. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. a fantastic expression fantastic Gosh, whiskey I, I think it's one of these things as, as a whiskey geek if you never had a chance to try something because we've had plenty of stuff that's over 20 years old and most of the time it doesn't hit the mark i mean honestly it's just usually what can happen it can get over oak it can have the sort of funkiness yeah you know, like sort of kind of thing going this is the exact opposite you get a little bit of the the dusty funkiness to it you get the complexity of the wood you've got uh, just brown sugar caramel bomb it's hitting all the check boxes. Yeah. It's, <laughs> I'm in I'm in love right now. Yeah. I think that's a testament to um when you get to this age range, I feel like it's it's not a bad idea to look at, you know, like singular lots or, you know, single barrels in this range. Like you're so hit or miss. But the second you try to mingle to accentuate whatever, like, you know, when you focus on one one whiskey or one age range. And then you're like, all right, so we want to hold on to the best qualities of this, but how do we accentuate it? That's where mingling them together, I think really makes it shine. Yeah. yeah Cause yeah. I know a lot of the distillers that have an older offering, like 18, 20 years plus a lot of it, they have to just dump into like to their, you know, lowest offering. Cause they're like, it's just too, not, not good. Right. You know? Yeah. It's, it, it's always going to lend something, right? Like, all right, so we'll put it in our younger stuff because it's going to lend structure, but it's not going to hold up on its own when it comes to aromatic. So from a, another kind of business aspect of this, when we start thinking about the distilleries that Diageo owns only in Kentucky, which the only one kind of rings a bell is the largest is going to be the Bullet Distillery, right? Do Is there an anticipation that Bullet will be creating whiskey that'll be going into blade and bow one of these days or to any other kind of offerings that would be in that portfolio you know i i would venture to guess not anytime soon one the identity and bullet needs it for their own brand (laughs) exactly right i mean one the staggering and wonderful sales that bullets had and like the across the country over the past you know really i think 10 years anyway is is just astounding and i think that they they need even with that new facility they need all the liquid that's coming off of that still they can get into that two um the profile of bullet i think is is something that's pretty far away from what the, what's in this in this bottle you know so um i don't know that flavor profile wise the whiskey that's coming out of that facility would line up really well so i think for now we're looking at what's what's being made at Stitzelweller, which is a super small amount, and then really relying on partnerships across the country or across the state in order to uh, in order to put this guy together. You know, we do have the new facility in in Lebanon, Kentucky, as well as um, as well as, you know, the Cascade Hollow Distillery. But um, I think both of them, one, Lebanon's brand new. um, So I think that they're probably still finding their feet for for what's coming off of the still down there. And two, Cascade Hollow's got its got its hands full already, so it would, with, which is a great problem to have because yeah. I think that plus it's, you couldn't really have a blend of Kentucky and then Tennessee 
And then you got to go to people with sets of well and be like, hey, it's a blend of Kentucky, Tennessee. You'd be like, wait a minute. We're, just, we're covering the South. It fits within the story. Yeah, there you go. Like in <laughs> Garden and gun. I'm, I'm well aware that would uh, that would not go over too well in the state of Kentucky. <laughs> yeah. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, all right. You, like got your, you get your purists out there, and that's, so, that's for sure. So Diageo clearly, you know, is a brand powerhouse, powerhouse and they're that's what they do. They build brands. What What is that secret sauce that, you know, gives them, or what do you think that... I mean, you don't have to tr- share all their secrets, but like at least one secret. Yeah. At least one secret. At least one. Secret. Yeah. Um. I think besides this, the wonderful education that they put out in the field. You mean that's right. Of yeah. Course. Besides um, those brand educators, right? Know, um, that's the top of the pyramid. Honestly, I think it's that Diageo is really great at um, identifying brand. I like create like identifying what the identity of the brand is really case by case. You know, you look at something um, in their portfolio and even just with American whiskey, like the identities of the whiskeys that they have are very different. They operate in different spaces, let alone like price points and everything else. So I think it's the fact that they're so focused on building one one brand individually from each other that they, it's not one template. You know, what they use for Johnny Walker is so different than what they use for Bullet or, you know, whatever it may be. So I think the the key for them building brands is the idea of like really tapping into the identity of each spirit and uh, and running from there. Well, Doug, I want to say thank you again for for coming on and sharing a little bit of insight into Blade and Bow. I know it's one of those things that I think everybody that's a whiskey geek has heard about it. They've seen it on the shelves, but they might not know about what goes into it. That or they have the the reservations of like ah, that's just all marketing of BS of just a while and blah blah blah. And and but it's good to have somebody that's an authoritative voice to be able to kind of talk about it and rest assured that yes, there is there is something going in there. But make sure you buy it now. This is the sales point. Make sure you buy it now before it gets stretched out even further down the line. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it's I I have yet to see. A shift. There's such consistency in that bottle, but yeah, 100. I, I think that um, I always loved having these conversations, and it's great to have. And you know, one of the things that I've always tried to keep in my education is like as much transparency. You can ask the hard questions, and if I can't answer it the way that we want to answer, it, I'm just going to tell you anyway. But uh, <laughs> it is really great to like give people a little more access. I would I would definitely say too. If people haven't come out to to see the Stitzwella Distillery, you know it gives a great connection to Blade and Bow, but it's so worth just feeling the history and like understanding how you can get so inspired that you got to do something with a facility like that. Well, it's such an interesting project. It's not just hey, let's take the same mash bill, age it in different warehouses, this and that, and brand it ten different ways. You know, it's like truly unique each time you're doing these Solera blends and whatnot. Yeah, yeah it's. It's on a trajectory of such great spaces, I think, in bourbon right now, too, is like these really unique projects that are interesting. And I think, you know, people are open to it more than they were five years ago. And I think it's really awesome. So, yeah, yeah I'm a fan. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that you, you bring up a good point, too, is that this is a this is an easy introduction for a lot of people that are getting into whiskey as well. At 91 points, I mean, you're you're looking at something that and and I honestly feel that you get the nose of a younger whiskey but you get the the taste and the oak of, of an older one however you know you don't get that bold rye spice you don't get any of that sort of delicate weed or anything like that it's it's a very just kind of middle of the road kind of way to kind of ease people into it so I yeah think, it's I perfectly think. balanced it's so it's approachable it's not like too offensive not too pronounced one way or the other it's it's so easy to drink yeah it's like if somebody hadn't drank bourbon before I'd be like, come over, try this. Let's go. It's because it's it's not you know entry level, but it's I don't know. It's it's good balance of. I'd say it's entry level for at least with a proof point for some people. But hey, that's just me. I, I think it's above that. <laughs> I, I kind of agree with both of you. You yeah. know, honestly, it's one of those things where you can find the complexity if you're looking for it, or yeah, if, if you're you want, uninitiated, it does, it's not gonna bother you. So you I can think, satisfy both crowds. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Doug, again, I want to say thank you for coming on the show, giving us some insight into your, not only just your history, but into the, the history of the brand and stuff like that. But if people want to learn more about Blade and Bow, they want to get in contact with you. They're like, hey, come and teach us about everything about the five keys. How would they do something like that? So I would say, you know, either going to the Stitzweller Distillery website, stitzwellerdistillery.com or bladenbow.com is a great place to do it. As well as if you do collect all five of those keys, that's where you're going to want to go to reach out 
to get a part of the five key club. I'm going hunt um, today. Do you, I need two through, two through five now. Do you have to go and like put them in an envelope and like mail the keys somewhere? Like take a picture of it? How's Take a picture. Take and a send picture. Them to us. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we may want to double check you, but I think if you take a picture, <laughs> got to bring receipts in. Yeah, timestamp that thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can send us a picture, and uh, we'll get your name on a julep cup, which is pretty great. And definitely, you know, I'm there as much as I can, not as much as I would like, but you can always come out to uh, the Stitzweller Distillery out in Shively. What days is it open? Uh, so we are open Wednesday through Sunday, and Sundays we don't open until 12.30, but it's 10 to, 10 to 5.30. And food and drink. Food and drink. So the Garden and Gun Club doesn't open until 11, and that's Thursday through Sunday. Uh, gotcha. Right, but we do have tours on Wednesday as well. So kind of reopening those those tour dates a little bit more as we can. So Sure, yeah. right on. Well, we're yeah. cool. So make sure you go check out Blade and Bow. Make sure you check out everything Diageo's doing as well, because they've got a huge portfolio of whiskeys that they're doing. But make sure you all check out bourbonpursuit.com for any any old episodes, join our mailing list, and also follow us on all the socials, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. And with that, cheers, everybody. We'll see you next week. <laughs>